1: Thank you, like Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 365th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. Of course, we know them as AHIMA. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, M.D., Incorporated, and good morning, Erica.
2: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone.
1: This morning we continue our reporting on I C D eleven. Margaret Skurka, who was on Tucked in Tuesday last month, returns from her meeting last week at the World Health Organization. Margaret's going to be reporting on the outcome of that meeting.
2: I C D eleven is expected to be released next month by the
1: WHO. But of course we know the US isn't expected to release I C D eleven for a number of years, of course.
2: Of course. And speaking of codes. Christy Pollard is here with some important information for coding cardiovascular surgery.
1: And also, Lori Johnson is going to be reporting on obesity this morning.
2: And Leslie Kriegstein will report on the latest regulatory news to come out of Washington.
1: Also, you have a very interesting segment this morning, don't you?
2: I hope so. I'm going to share some things I learned in a conference I attended in early
1: April. I read your story this morning, in the ICD-10 Monitor News. Looking forward to your observations, as always. And we have much to report. And we begin this morning with Tim
0: Powell, who is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University. Inviting you to attend the AHA Coding Clinic webcast by Gloria Ann Bryant tomorrow, Wednesday, April
3: 17th. To register, click on the handout tab in today's broadcast. Here now is Tim Powell. Hi, Chuck. I want to talk about why people are mad about insulin, and you should be too. The House Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee held a hearing on Wednesday, April 10th at 1030 at 2322 of the Rayburn House Office Building. The hearing was entitled, Priced Out of a Life-Saving Drug, Getting Answers on the Rising Cost of Insulin. This was the second such hearing on the cost of insulin. In large part, we see the pharma industry has what seems to be an upside-down pricing structure. When the pharma industry creates a new life-saving drug or a version of a drug, they raise the price as the demand goes up. Normal pricing suggests that at some point, as demand rises for a commodity, the price per unit goes down to reflect the fact that the cost to develop the commodity has already been incurred or baked into the per-unit pricing, and the cost to produce each unit falls as the manufacturer produces more units. The falling cost per unit becomes the barrier that keeps out competitors. Based on data from the CMS pharmacy dashboard, the number of Medicare Part D beneficiaries using high priced drugs to treat type 1 and type 2 diabetes grew 13.64% from 2014 to 2017, from 2.7 million to 3.1 million beneficiaries. At the same time, the total spending for these drugs went up 35.36%, from 5.3 billion to $8.2 billion. Well, the dashboard doesn't have 2018 data, on it It appears that the trend lines continue. We have testimony on Capitol Hill that patients on fixed incomes that need insulin to live are skipping meals and other medications to pay for their increased cost of insulin. During the hearings, Illinois Representative Jan Schakowsky said during the hearing that the prices of insulin are curiously close between manufacturers and way too high. This is the other problem in drug pricing that we have talked about in a previous article in Rack Monitor. When you have an industry comprised of a few manufacturers with barriers to entry, instead of competing against each other by lowering prices, oligopoly pricing takes over and producers collude, either directly or indirectly, by matching each other's higher prices. Imagine there's only two gas stations in town. When the owner of one gas station sees the other raise its price, they could decide, if I leave my price low, all the people will fill up at my station, I'll make more money. But in oligopoly pricing, when the owner of one station sees their competitor raise their prices, they say, I can raise my price too. Because there are only two gas stations in town, and I will make more money by raising my price to match my competitor rather than having a price war with them. Here is the hard edge of the pharma industry that the public struggles with. The pharma industry in the end sees drugs as commodities and charge as much as they can without considering the impact on patients. They argue they have to do this to make a profit to continue making life-saving drugs. At some point, it is a job of our legislators to stand up for patients, and let's see what they do. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a
1: compliance expert and an ICD-10 monitor national
3: correspondent. It's
1: Tuesday. It's April 16, 2019. It's the day after a destructive fire rift through the iconic cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. You're listening to Talk to you on Tuesday. Stand by.
0: If you're looking for cutting-edge coding education, peer-to-peer collaboration, and engaging discussions, Look no further than AHIMA's Clinical Coding Meeting. Join your peers in Chicago September 14th and 15th and gain a unique blend of education covering CDI, revenue cycle, professional services, facility services, coding updates, compliance, auditing, and innovation. Advanced registrations receive a free copy of AHIMA's Gold Standard 2020 ICD-10 Codebook of your choice. Visit ahima.org slash clinicalcoding for more information and save $100 with early bird pricing by July 15th. AHIMA hopes to see you in Chicago September 14th and 15th. Now's
1: the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Reporting. with that, we turn to Senior Healthcare Consultant Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori.
4: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. This morning, I'm going to talk about a heavy topic, Body Mass Index, or BMI, which was a topic in coding clinic fourth quarter 2018. Body Mass Index is the measurement of body fat based on height and weight. Normal is 18.5 to 24.9. This diagnosis code is found in category Z68. There is a pediatric portion, which is Z68.5, and an adult, portion, which is Z68.1 to Z68.45 in the classification, there has been some question about inconsistency between the Center for Disease Control growth charts and the ICD-10-CM code for patients who are 20 years old. Coding Clinic states that the coder should follow the instructional notes in the classification and assign the code based on the pediatric codes. Another big topic is about when to assign the BMI code. The BMI should only be assigned when the provider has documented a weight diagnosis, such as failure to thrive, R62.7 for an adult, or R62.5 for a child, or underweight, R63.6, or obesity, E66.9. This advice is also supported by the official coding guidelines coding clinic expands by saying that obesity and morbid obesity are always reportable. Other diagnoses, such as underweight, overweight, etc., must meet the conditions of a secondary diagnosis, which are there's clinical evaluation or therapeutic treatment or a diagnostic procedure, or it extends the length of stay, or it increases nursing care and or monitoring. If the weight diagnosis is documented by the provider, the BMI can be coded. The documentation regarding body mass index can be authored by healthcare professionals other than the provider as supported by the official coding guidelines. It is not appropriate to routinely report the BMI without a weight diagnosis. The trouble that we run into is that the electronic medical record automatically calculates the body mass index, and with that information right there, we want to assign the code. Morbid obesity and malnutrition are hierarchical condition categories, or HCCs, as is the BMI greater than 40. It is important to gather this information for all payers using the risk adjustment factor methodology for reimbursement. One last thought about BMI. Coding Clinic states that the BMI should not be reported for pregnant patients. You can report obesity in pregnancy, which is 099.21 and then assign the appropriate 6 character, without a BMI code. The instructional note is to add a code for the type of obesity for these patients but the instructional note does not say anything about body mass index. My article on body mass index is available on www.icd10monitored.com. So probably good information right before Easter and Passover. So back to
2: you, Erica. Oh, that hurts. Thank you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions LLC.
1: Chuck Thanks, Erica, very much, and thank you, Lori. And you can read Lori's reporting, as she said just a few moments ago, on this very timely topic in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Here now with the latest regulatory news is Dateline Washington correspondent, Leslie Crinkston. Good morning, Leslie. Welcome to the broadcast.
5: Thanks, Chuck. The government is counting its pennies after tax day, and Congress has begun a two-week holiday recess. It should be quiet, right? Guess again. The health IT world remains in comment mode as the May 3rd deadlines to comment on both the ONC information blocking rule and the CMS interoperability and patient access rule is closing in. These rules are certain to overall how healthcare information is shared across the ecosystem and we're paying close attention. With RFIs embedded covering topics like patient matching, long-term care, and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, I'd expect to see organizations like mine produce lengthy comments. The industry remains hopeful that the comment deadline may be extended an additional 30 days. In the last few weeks, we've also seen CMS unveil a million dollar plus artificial intelligence challenge and detail an expansion of telehealth under Medicare Advantage program. We're also expecting rulemaking from SAMHSA governing how substance use disorder records can be shared. This is accompanied by renewed efforts in Congress to align 42 CFR part two with HIPAA for the purposes of payment treatment and operation. It's also almost payment rule time. So stay tuned for the inpatient prospective payment system rule that is imminent. On Capitol Hill, there has been no rest for the weary. Congressional committees are hard at work picking apart the president's fiscal year 2020 budget that included cuts for just about everyone. We expect to see the house labor health and human services appropriations bill soon likely after this current recess, and that will give us some perspective on how lawmakers believe HHS should be prioritizing their initiatives. The Senate Health Committee continues to track the latest with electronic health records and interoperability, hearing from industry witnesses last month, with a second hearing expected with government representatives in coming weeks. They also remain interested in ways to cut health spending. The privacy debate continues as proposals are expected to emerge out of both the House and Senate governing consumer privacy. Uncertainty remains about where health data will fall into the conversation. Speaker Pelosi reminded folks that she will not support proposals that preempt state laws like the California Consumer Privacy Act in her home state. Interestingly, last week, Senator Bernie Sanders, presidents are hopeful, introduced his Medicare for All bill. Chi members are taking note because, among many other things, this legislation would alter physician payment federal payment and paper performance programs would end. That would include value-based purchasing, the current Meaningful Use or Promoting Interoperability Program, and other payment systems for Medicare, such as the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System. Telehealth is also on the mind as the Congressional Telehealth Caucus wrapped up their comment period, asking for ways to extend access and use for both telehealth and remote patient monitoring services. So Erica, it's a beautiful time of year here in the nation's capital. But unfortunately, policy folks like myself just haven't had a lot of time to enjoy it. Back to you.
2: Thanks, Leslie. Wow, that was a lot of information. Uh, I do recommend that you get your comments in. Um, I like to echo Leslie. That was Leslie Craigstein. Leslie is a Vice President of Congressional Affairs for the College of Health Information Management Executives, or as we know them,
1: CHIME. Chuck? Thanks, Ergen. Thank you very much, Leslie. Our Tuesday focus today is about the challenges associated with ICD-10-PCS, coding of cardiovascular surgery. Reporting our Tuesday focus this morning is senior healthcare consultant, Christy Pollard. Good morning, Christy. Welcome to the program.
6: Good morning, Chuck, and thank you for having me. It's always great to be a guest on Talk 10 Tuesday. Last week, ICD-10 Monitor published my article on coding cardiovascular surgeries in ICD-10-PCS, and the opening line was, forget the guidelines. Now, anyone who's ever worked with me, participated in one of my webinars or training classes, or heaven forbid, been audited by me can attest that I rarely forget the guidelines. But there are times when the words on the page seem to become a mental tongue twister to my little dyslexic brain. That's right, I'm a dyslexic coder, mildly so, but dyslexic all the same, which is why I always put the guidelines on hold and focus first on the procedures themselves. Last month, I had the privilege of presenting a webcast for ICD University on coronary and peripheral artery bypass, and the first guideline for bypass procedure reads, bypass procedures are coded by identifying the body part bypassed from and the body part bypassed to. The fourth character body part specifies the body part bypassed from, and the qualifier specifies the body part bypassed to. Now, the second guideline doesn't get much better. Coronary artery bypass procedures are coded differently than other bypass procedures as described in the previous guideline. Rather than identifying the body part bypassed from, the body part identifies the number of coronary arteries bypassed to, and the qualifier specifies the vessel bypassed from. Oh, my poor little brain. So, let's forget the guidelines for a minute and focus on anatomy and function. In the peripheral arteries, blood is moving away from the heart with the express purpose of getting oxygen to the body's tissues. Without oxygen, those tissues will die, so any arterial blockages put the body's tissues at risk. Think limb salvaging procedures here. If there is a blockage in the femoral artery, the surgeon may perform a fem pop bypass using a piece of graft material to make a new connection between the femoral and popliteal arteries.
5: Blood is moving from the
6: femoral artery, that's your fourth character body part, to the popliteal artery, that's your seventh character qualifier and it's just that simple. I just applied the first guideline without really reading the first guideline just by thinking about vascular anatomy, how blood flows and how the procedure restores blood flow to the tissues. I think Ax-Fem bypasses are some of the most fascinating. In order to restore blood flow, there's an when there's an aortic occlusion, the purpose of this procedure is to restore blood flow to the legs which requires two different bypass procedures. The axillary artery, which is your body part, is connected to the femoral arteries, that's the qualifier, but then they do a a fem-fem bypass to connect the femoral artery to the other so that we're now restoring blood flow to both legs. For this procedure, we end up with two codes, one for the ax-fem bypass and another for the femfem bypass. Now, the coronary arteries are coded differently because of the structure of ICD-10-PCS. The fourth character body part for coronary bypass will always be the coronary arteries because that's what's going to keep us in the heart and great vessels body system. The qualifier could be one of many structures, such as the aorta, left or right mammary arteries, or thoracic or abdominal arteries. Now, I realize as I talk that I sound a bit like the guidelines speaking some foreign language, but I will tell you that as I talk, I see the images in my head from years of practice and training demonstrating anatomy and blood flow. Once you connect the dots from AMP to procedure intent and technique to coding, you really can forget the guidelines because now you know the why behind the what we
2: do. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Christy. That was excellent. That was Christy Pollard. Chrissy is a senior health consultant with the Hagen Consulting Group.
1: Chuck? Thank you, Erica, and thank you, Chrissy, very much for an excellent report. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, Margaret Skirka returned last week from the World Health Organization's meeting in Sweden. Margaret joins us now to report on how other countries are approaching ICD-11. The code set is expected to be released by the WHO organization next month. So good morning, Margaret. Welcome back to the U.S. of A., and welcome back to Talk Talkin' Tuesday.
7: Thanks, Chuck. I have recently returned from the WHO mid-year meeting of the MBRG and the EIC. So that's a morbidity reference group and an education and implementation group, and it's a part of the WHO network. The WHO has various work groups made up of individuals um, like myself and others that are involved in coding from around the world. We meet face-to-face at the annual meeting each fall, that location moves around the world and the spring mid-year meetings, and the work is around I-11, of course. Uh, I have both voice and vote at the meetings, officially representing IFHEMA, which is the International Federation of HIM Associations, but with the support of our HIM Association in the U.S., AHIMA. So there were reports from many countries on where they are with the implementation process. So we heard from Australia, the Netherlands, Thailand, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, the U.K., Germany, and Canada. The similarity is that all are reviewing projected timelines, resources needed. Some are preparing translations. Now, that's one thing we don't have to worry about because the system was built in English. Um, Discussing how the new version will be used and, most importantly, when. There is agreement, I think worldwide, that any implementation plan must include things like an impact assessment, a risk analysis, resource planning, and strong communication tools. And and all need to start at some point the process of training HIM professionals like us, or in some cases, in Germany, for example, it's the physicians who do who do the coding in that country that need the training and some other countries use that model as well. Japan is probably the furthest ahead in their plans for implementation, and they indicated they're three years away, so maybe 2022. Um, Australia is busy developing an electronic training tool. Canada, uh, I think this is interesting, they've had coders already code 3,000 cases using ICD-11. They trained 10 coders to do that work. They spent 40 hours training those coders, developed test bank of questions, et cetera, and the Canadian at the meeting who reported Um, The good news, I guess, is that uh, after training and practice, a coder spent only an average of 12 minutes on a chart. But that's doing everything electronically. So um, our Canadian neighbors will be a good resource now in terms of uh, that specific study. I did a little verbal survey of most of the countries present, and exactly none planned to use traditional coding books. The alpha index is so large that a book is probably impossible. And there are links throughout the system. It was built to be used electronically, and it is assumed that countries will do coding electronically. And that will be a game changer for some of us in the U.S. Coding around quality and safety got a lot of attention. Um, the, the system allows us to code injury or harm, the cause of the harm, the mode, um, whether it's a procedure, device, etc. So the i11 browser and some tutorial videos are available online for any of you who want to explore it now. And I think we provided a link, or just Google i11 at some point today or this week, and, and a lot of stuff um, will come up. We do hope that our government does streamline the adoption process, and we've been encouraged, uh, have been encouraged that they will. And I did comment on that a few weeks ago, but if you didn't do it then, please go to the NCVHS website and read the letter that was sent on February 21st to the Department of Health and Human Services. It is really good stuff. So I suggest that we keep learning about I-11, and here's hoping that in the United States we have a good and effective implementation plan for our country
2: uh, in the coming years. Thank you. That was Margaret Skirka. Margaret is past president of the International Federation of the Health Information Management Association, IFHIMA, and is its current representative to the WHO family of International Classifications Education and Implementation Committee. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Erica, very much. And Margaret, thank you. And by the way, a program note. Uh, Margaret's going to be with us on our Tuesday, October the 22nd broadcast, when she's going to be reporting on the outcome of the WHO meeting. It's going to be up in Canada. That meeting takes place October the, the 7th through the 11th. Margaret's going to be, of course, on our broadcast on October the 22nd. Now it's time for a very popular segment here on Talk Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, you're going to be talking about EHRs.
2: I am. On April 5th. I attended a conference through Case Western Reserve University Law Medicine Center entitled Electronic Health Records and Patient Safety, Legal Challenges and Solutions. It was really interesting to see this topic from the legal perspective. Um, I've written a two-part series on the subject based on the conference and the recommended readings, and I posted the, we posted the first um, part today. Uh, I'm going to share a few tidbits in my talk back today and next week. So first, we went over the uh, history and the current state of affairs of electronic health records. In 2004, Bush 43 made transitioning from paper to an electronic medical record a priority. The intent was to have all systems electronic within 10 years. Hmm. The Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, the ONC, was established. Then, the High Tech Act, which stands for Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health, in 2009, provided financial incentives for institutions to adopt the technology. We know the Medicare EHR Incentive Program established that as meaningful use, or as some of us call it, meaningless abuse. Uh, The EHR component was transformed into the Advancing Care Information category of the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, arm of the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act, or MACRA. The point of this is that the government basically mandates and historically financially incentivized the use of certified electronic health records there are eight functionalities which were felt to represent significant advantage over paper. The ability to display information and data, the ability to manage results and data, computerized provider e- order entry, and I'm not sure that having the provider entering orders was necessarily an advance, but having orders entered into computer is certainly advantageous. Clinical decision support, such as alerts, prompts, reminders, templating, etc electronic communication and connectivity with other caregivers, patient support that is permitting patients to be able to view their own records, administrative processes such as scheduling and billing, and governmental reporting and population health management. The ideal of the EHR has not exactly been borne out in practice. The user interfaces are often clunky, not intuitive, they're cumbersome, they're not user-friendly. The myriad software systems in the hospital do not interface seamlessly with one another. Structured field design often limits the native storytelling. Copy and paste has led to note bloat and obfuscation. And there are numerous ways the EHR can imperil safety. It can fail during use be poorly designed where it works the way it was planned but doesn't meet the user's needs. It can be inc- used incorrectly with end runarounds. There can be EHR interface issues where it works fine but during export to external systems something untoward happens and they don't connect. Or there can be a desirable feature which is not currently available. Many of the speakers reiterated that improving the EHR requires a socio-technical approach because it's a complex interaction between people, processes, technology, and the working environment. When there is a problem, it is sometimes hard to isolate a single point of failure or of corrective action. So next week, I will go over some specific points which I found interesting from the talks and the readings. Until then, Chag Pesach Semeach, and Happy Easter. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Erica, very much. Uh, You can read Erica's outstanding reporting on this subject in today's edition of ICC 10 Monitor. Also, you can read it next Tuesday for part two. Thanks again, Erica. Uh, we've asked our panel to stick around for a couple of quick questions. Uh, I want to ask uh, Lori to answer a question from Judy.
4: Yes, yeah, so, she asked if um, the BMI code can be reported with a diagnosis such as diabetes. The, the coding guidelines are pretty clear that it has to be a weight diagnosis. Um, and it, a weight diagnosis means more than just obesity, morbid obesity. It could be malnutrition. It could be overweight, underweight, um, failure to thrive, et cetera. But, it should be only reported with a weight diagnosis.
2: It doesn't seem like there would be even a point to capturing the BMI code if there was no weight-related diagnosis. Like, you know, a diabetic whose weight is normal, it seems like why would you want to capture that BMI? It seems like you want to only if you have a diabetic, who, you know, perhaps a type 2 diabetic who's overweight or obese or morbidly obese, and then it's clinically significant.
5: And again,
4: we would look for the provider to say that the patient is overweight or underweight.
1: Lori, while you're still there, Martha has a question as it relates to the HEDIS audits.
4: I've heard a little bit about the, some rumblings. There some payers are requiring that the BMI be reported at least once per year, and my... My question would be for them, do they want it reported in an ICD-10 code or are they looking for it to be reported as part of the value-based purchasing the Category 2 codes that report BMI levels as well? So that would be the question.
2: Tina has pointed out that the BMI is clinically significant for the PDPM payment model for PAC, which is a whole bunch of acronyms. I don't know what they mean, but it, it just sort of always reinforces what I say, where, where you know, it's Sometimes it's too hard for doctors to keep track of all the risk adjustment modeling, and so we really just need to make sure the patient looks as sick and complex in the medical record as they look in real life and let all the rest of it fall apart. And Ida also says that maybe we would want to capture this data for statistical epidemiologic purposes. So I think that those are fair points, but the rules are that we're supposed to have a diagnosis to be able to capture BMI, so we're going to sort of have to leave it at that.
1: And that's going to be the final word on that subject. And we thank you very much for being with us today, our 365th edition of Talk in Tuesday. And, Erica, I want to thank our guests, Lori Johnson, Leslie Creason, Christy Powell, Tim Powell, and our special guest, Marcus Gurka. Thank you very much. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to all the Talked in Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device. It's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And until then, I'm Chuck Buck. I'm reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thank you again for being with us.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.